Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and Toronto-based critic, lecturer, and instructor at U of T, author of several cinema books and articles for publications like The Ringer and Cinemascope, Adam Naiman. What drives the desire for man to go to space? Is it the exploration of the final frontier, the urge to know more about ourselves and where we came from? Or is it just straight capitalist desire to strip mine everything for profit? 2000 saw several movies that were about space colonization and exploration, specifically focusing around Mars. We're going to look at two of them today. But Adam, before we do that, do you have a guess or do you know why there were so many movies about this topic? Well, uh, my math tells me that 2000 was uh, the first year of a new millennium. And, well, your and, math is correct. Yeah. It checks and, and also, my math tells me it's one year off from the rather uh, mythical or film mythical year of 2001, the year dramatized, prophesied, and sort of seen somewhat presciently by Stanley Kubrick in 1968 with 2001, which is very much a movie against which all sci-fi exploration movies measure themselves against, whether it's mm-hmm. in terms of narrative or or theme, or special effects. And I think by 2000, 2001, the idea of 2001 had caught up to itself, right? Uh, I think special effects had been made even more and more central to American movie making, which is one thing that 2001 contributed to, but Star Wars very much pushed over the top. And I think that maybe the, maybe, I'm just spitballing here, the acceleration of both space technology film special effects technology, and an absence of that old-fashioned heroism that was associated with space travel, space exploration, the space race, America asserting, you know, its its dominance through the through the the, the, the spheres. Those things all kind of caught up to themselves. Now that's balanced against the fact that it's often hugely coincidental when movies on similar subjects and themes end up being theatrically released at the same time. So we could go down a rabbit hole of why those seven movies all came out within a year, <laughs> a year and a half of each other. Or we could sort of say, wow, that's cool that that happened. But there's no question that in 2000, and your 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 film cultural uh, you know your your editors your writers early internet film culture did the same thing they did when Deep Impact and Armageddon came out in '98. Right. They're like, what is it? What does it yeah. mean? And you could argue that what does it mean is the theme of 2001 and Mission to Mars, as well as the only relevant question to ask about Red Planet. <laughs> what? <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? 
Oh, I have a lot more questions about Red Planet yeah. than just that involving the pissing contest between Tom Sizemore and oh. Val Kilmer that yeah. actually happens on film. That's not a metaphor. They actually try to see whose stream will go highest while on Mars' Those atmosphere. Those are all Val Kilmer movies from like, what, 19, maybe 88 onwards? Because <laughs> every single film has an interesting story about who he had conflict with and how it well, went yeah, down. Well, now as we're, as we're recording this, there's a film documenting, uh, documenting mm-hmm. Kilmer's career. Uh, premiering at the Cannes Film Festival called Val, which is him filming himself over a period of 30 years, which I just think sounds amazing. I have not read enough about the film to know if there's like a long section on Red Planet, but it seems yes. but it seems possible. I'm sure he was taking video diaries of himself at that point. I double, I, I did check and I don't, I think sadly this gets left out and I oh. almost do wonder about rights issues and things like that with a documentary right. like that. It's the same director as uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor doc. So, I mean, this is a very... Uh, practice person and getting around rights issues. But I, I do think of some of these big studio titles, especially titles that studios want to bury. I do wonder about that back door. <laughs> if they were like, you can do whatever, you can do all the Dr. Moreau you want, but you can't do Red Planet. But I, but I do think it's interesting that we're dealing with two movies about missions that for various reasons malfunction due to mm-hmm. kind of industrial and mechanical, but also human error. And these are also both productions that in different ways had issues right we can mm-hmm. say about mission to mars and red planet whatever we think of the finished product they are not neither of them are quite the movie that was intended to be made which is a kind of interesting dovetail between theme and and production circumstance we're going to get into that as well and the um i mean the big thing too as well that a lot of people forget is like the year 2000 is when people got really interested in space and mining rights once again about who uh things would be owned by and colonization so uh 2000 is actually the year where we figured out there may or may not be water on mars that's when we found those channels um and that's also 1997 is when the first uh mars rover land the mars pathfinder rover landed and started taking uh high definition pictures so we could actually see what was going on do you know who can own planets do you know what like the international agreement on this is? Uh, I'm guessing Amazon has their hand in it somehow. <laughs> no one. According oh, to okay. the United Nations, no nation can stake a claim regardless of whether or not they plant a flag on it. But there is a guy named Dennis Hope who wrote a letter to them in 1988 citing a flaw that he saw where he was like, well, no nation can own one, but what about an individual? And he never heard back, so he just staked a claim on it and then started selling shares of the moon. He has sold 611 million acres so far of land on the moon, each at 1995, 36.50 after a lunar tax and shipping and handling of the deed. He has also claimed uh, ownership of any of the planets that have uh, land masses, not gas planets. So Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter's moon, Io, and Pluto. You can buy the entirety of Pluto for $250,000, just so you know. Yeah, but Pluto got downgraded. I mean, you buy that for $250,000 and then you find out it's not a planet and it's like buying a studio condo you're 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 screwed <laughs> i am i am the owner of multiple children's books with variations on titles like pluto the sad planet that isn't a planet or <laughs> what happened to pluto which are all these anthropomorphic pluto talking to the other planets who kind of bully him or her depending on how it's written but your your moon saga reminds me that there's a canadian documentary called lunar sea by uh, simon ennis that talks a little that's bit, who this is about yeah, that that talks about about that stuff as well as various other uh, ideas about moon travel and the mythologies of of the moon. 
for sure. Well, we're going to be getting into a lot of colonization stuff today. And in my opinion, these are both movies about capitalism gone horribly awry in both cases. And just it, people are, humans are expendable in order for us to create new homes from planets we have ruined. So our first movie today was described by Ebert as a film where much of the suspense involves the disappearance of algae. <laughs> and as you can possibly imagine, it takes a philosophical approach to Mars exploration, launching Val Kilmer as part of a space crew to contemplate the greater meaning of the universe and God as they embark on a heroic mission to help colonize Mars in the face of a dying Earth. But lest you think this is a movie that's all pontificating Terrence Stamp, someone will be brutally torn to shreds by a glorified GPS robo-dog named Amy, someone else will be tossed off a cliff for some reason, and you bet Tom Sizemore and Val Kilmer will have words, both in character and on set. Will Carrie Ann Moss save them all? Should she bother? <laughs> Let's talk Red Planet. Alicia, I gave like a little bit of an idea, but like, what's this one about? Oh my God. Um, so they've terraformed Mars because it's 20, I want to say 2053. And basically by 2020, keeping in mind that this film is from 2000, we've destroyed the planet. So right there, we're accurate. <laughs> we're right on on target. <laughs> so by 2052-53, they know that they have to terraform Mars in order to transplant the human race, I guess. It's not really explicitly said. However, a successful algae campaign where they're growing algae on Mars goes awry and the algae all dies. And so they send these, for lack of a better term, space truckers, although these aren't like the kind of space truckers from Alien. Um, they send this crew to go and investigate what's happened. Yes, they have a robo dog. Its name is Amy. It's kind of like the robo Cujo of the film. So this film doesn't really know <laughs> if like is Mars terrifying? Are humans terrifying? Or is this robot dog that's basically the Terminator that then gets like a switch kind of flicked on it and when it lands improperly and then tries to kill the whole crew while they're on Mars trying to survive. It doesn't really know what it is. It has elements of sort of everything you could picture a various Martian film being. There are characters that are dispensed with quite quickly. I was very sad for Benjamin Bratt, who is in this film and has really worked on, really worked hard on his arms that he's killed very early. Like his, <laughs> these are like, this is like a ripped Benjamin Bratt. It's insane. Terrence Stamp is in this film and he is like done away with, I think at the 30 minute mark and i don't think they that's a give spoiler. him a monologue and you know that's why he's there it's just he got a great monologue about the nature of space and god and then he's like hey i'm great send the check over to my agent see you later i realized science couldn't answer any of the really interesting questions so i turned to philosophy been searching for god ever since who knows i may pick up a rock and it'll say underneath made by god universe full of surprises that would be a big one. Yeah, he's really misused. I mean, it does it does allow for Val Kilmer at the 30 minute mark in this film to use the line, you know, we're not going to no, we're not going to leave you behind or, you know, no one gets left behind. And then he <laughs> bleeds out in his spacesuit. Um, it's yeah, it's it's it is a lot about algae. There is an alien life form that is not revealed until the third act, which I think this film could have been improved by of that element, which and I want our listeners to keep in mind that pitch black is also the year 2000 there are elements of pitch black in this film for sure if they'd brought in the sort of like scary alien bug that burrows into your brain and you know kills you much earlier i think it would have been a more effective horror film but basically yeah they have to figure out what happened to some algae well val kilmer and tom sizemore 
are buddies in the film, but you can really tell we're not buddies on set. And uh, you can even notice that I think at a certain point, it could be wrong. They're probably refusing to be on set together because anytime they have a conversation, it's either a body double or it's filmed over someone's shoulder. That's exactly what happened. It got to the point where they refused to be on set with each other. And if people are familiar with what happened with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer on the set of Island Dr. Moreau, something very similar happened here where the dick swinging happened very early. And uh, apparently Tom Sizemore and Val Kilmer were actually buddies for a long time, even before this film. And then Val Kilmer found out that Tom Sizemore got some of his specialty workout equipment shipped in from Europe, and that didn't sit well with him. And so that's when uh, he started uh, refusing to come out of his trailer until he got the same special treatment and then they started swearing at each other and at one point apparently they started throwing weights at each other in the weight room and when uh, this Tom Sizemore character go went to hit the uh, Val Kilmer character was supposed to do that the ADs had to yell not the face not the face we're not done shooting close-ups yet so he punches him in the chest and that's him actually hitting him so they stopped talking for a while but according to Tom Sizemore they're good now I mean it's just heartbreaking to see you know cast members from Heat fighting <laughs> that whole the whole point of that movie as i recall is that you know uh it, it's family no actually that's the point of the fast that, i was franchise. just gonna say you're getting fast, fast and furious kind of uh, but, but yeah. no, the, the, I, I think the point of heat though is that you've got to get along in a professional environment and i think that kilmer in that film is a bit of a liability but he went full wayne grow in the mid to late 90s yeah. in his other movies he's the guy there's like this elephant graveyard of Hollywood films from the mid to late 90s that are marked by Kilmer. Yeah. And and it, it's offset by the fact that he's an amazing actor and and screen presence. So it's not about separating the art from the 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 artist in that case to use a really dumb phrase. It's sort of more like that quality that Kilmer has always had of just being magnetic and fascinating and weird and he 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 stands out in very normal conventional movies. He has an interesting vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, that that interesting vibe doesn't come out of nowhere. But here it's not like the movie is giving him anything particularly interesting to play. And while I can't speak for Tom Sizemore, or I guess I can't speak for Val Kilmer, what you get from Kilmer in this movie is he's bored. Yeah. You know, this is this is yeah. like the epitome of a bored performance because it's not a movie wrecking performance or a movie wrecking behind the scenes thing where it results in a fascinating bit of acting. He is just completely narcotized for this entire movie. He's barely Kilmerish. He barely, I mean, it's hard to describe how he looks on this film because he has these frosted tips, this really weird blonde, and he's kind of a point break surfer dude. But so does Gary Sinise. So this is obviously the sign of the the frost tip times. We're going to get into Dracula 2000 coming up and that whole 2000s aesthetic. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's got like the sort of surfer necklace. He is the romantic lead sort of in this very misguided romantic subplot that's in Red Planet. We haven't even mentioned Carrie Ann Moss, I think, is quite good in this or she's trying at least. And she's... She's never on. She never gets to Mars. She's always on the ship that's malfunctioned and sort of, um, you know, the voice of their god, the person who's going to be responsible for potentially saving these stranded Martian <laughs> astronauts. That romantic subplot just doesn't work. It's it's baff it's baffling. Like I can't imagine anyone. This is a Warner Brothers film. I can't imagine any studio executive allowing this out of the can. I well, really your hopes can. get up early because they the, the first scene between Kilmer and Carrie Moss, he like surprises her coming out of the shower. And she's yeah. like, she's like kind of okay with it. She's, you know, doing stuff with a towel and he's kind of looking at it. And you're like, okay, these guys have been in space for a long time. It's interesting to see these feelings kind of, kind of developing. Just pretend I'm your sister. 
I have two sisters. They don't look like you. But yeah, she's completely sidelined. And it made me think when you're talking about she never gets to touch down. I mean, she's they keep calling her like mom, right? And I mm-hmm. thought about how in, in Alien, the whole joke was on the idea of this maternal artificial intelligence mother. Called, yeah. called mother. Or that in 2001, the sort of homoerotic undertones of how like it's all playing with that idea of gender and masculinity and femininity and technology. But I mean, here, the filmmakers are just so unimaginative. They're like, we'll take this really attractive, talented actress coming off the Matrix and just sit her in a chair while everybody kind of goes down there. It's not a comment and it's not subversive and it's not satirical. It's just such a waste. Because yeah. she might actually have some dynamism if she was down on the surface doing stuff with people. She's good. Like, her monologues are good. She looks yeah. incredible. Like, if Benjamin Bratt has amazing arms, like, Carrie Ann Moss's arms are stunning. They're like, like a But sculpture. she's also coming off Matrix, yeah. and there was an actual physical gamut test that they had to do to be even cast in the Matrix to be able to do any of that wire work. And she's coming right off that, so she was ready to go. And she's the one who actually gets the most interesting action sequences yeah, true. in this film. Um, I do want to bring us to the first time filmmaker who helmed this mess uh, named Anthony Hoffman. Now, Anthony Hoffman is a commercial director who the producers saw his work and went, oh, he can probably handle some big imagery. He's clearly very intelligent. He was handling really high-end brands. I believe he did something for like Givenchy and things like that. So he was uh, doing very artistic, um, beautiful things. And then he was handed $80 million to make this first feature. And he really took it seriously. He went and he visited NASA and he watched them work and he tried to genuinely figure out what would fire look like in space. And that's something I really did appreciate about this, this like genuine attempt at authenticity. But then you also give him this script and you give him Val Kilmer. And anyone, as we have seen, handing them Val Kilmer with any other sort of male lead for their first film is just a recipe for disaster. And reading interviews with him at the t- at the time, he was like, no, nothing went down. All the like uh, all the uh, all the sayings that he was going nuts were totally exaggerated. There was no drama on set. So it's really interesting that he kind of took this took this approach for his first film, kind of trying to salvage it. But he, he didn't step foot on another film set up until now it looks like he's got something else in pre-production for 2022 but he didn't get another film after this point it bombed i mean this is a film that yeah it's 80 it's an 80 million dollar budget which it's very rare for a major studio to give a first-time director a budget like that or to have a film budgeted at this and then go for someone who is so untested um and it ended up worldwide only making 33 million i think in its first weekend it made like three million something that's just like Wow, like almost staggering that I can't imagine this film even doing that poorly because at least it had a trailer where you could tell it was special effects and recognizable faces. Somehow people were able to figure out that this was quite stinky, unfortunately. (laughs) This came out too. This came out before Mission to Mars, I believe. And do you think that would have affected the box office of Mission to Mars if this one did no bueno? I don't know. What do you think, Adam? I mean, I mean, maybe in in very different ways, neither of these, despite the good bet vibe that they had by being these millennial Kubrickian, you know, uh, Mars and the Zeitgeist movies, I think they were both kind of bad bets. Mm-hmm. And hindsight's twenty twenty. But when you look at what was, I mean, again, this is the sort of thing that it, it's a little facile to do. But I mean, what's what were the, you know, what's the huge hit of 2000 is Gladiator, which yeah. is a kind of throwback, uh, a, a kind of throwback movie. It's a very digital movie, but in the service of kind of analog textures. I mean, you can play that game and it's a bit of a rigged game, but you can sort of be like, well, that obviously just wasn't kind of what people wanted to to see at that moment. I think the both studios bet big. 
and made the kind of uh, you know made the kind of big bet that when it doesn't pay off, you 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 just get absolutely dunked. You know, because you can't yeah. do science. You can't do science fiction cheap. I was going to say, like, I think hard science fiction is a tough sell. And these were sold as hard science fiction. Like, yes, they had action. But in their marketing materials, they're talking about how Anthony Hoffman is going to NASA. And I think that would have scared people off because something like Pitch Black does very well and launches the career of Vin Diesel, like, in the same year. But what's interesting, too, is that Red Planet is closer to Pitch Black in that it has its trashy side. Like mm-hmm. the killer dog CPU <laughs> thing and whatever else. But I mean, Pitch Black does lean into B movie stuff in the way that Mission to Mars definitely doesn't. And in the way that I think Red Planet does without any sense of purpose. When Alicia was describing the film earlier, I thought really well, something you were saying, all this stuff keeps happening. It's like a movie that is trying to find things to happen. Instead mm-hmm. of any of these things developing really organically out of the situation, none of these things develop out of the characters. None of these things develop out of the performances. The movie just keeps throwing stuff at people to kind of see how they deal with it. And then it's just the law of movie star survival, which is the higher build somebody is, the longer they kind of last, which takes all the pleasure out of that kind of, and then there were none yeah. set up. I mean, even Mission to Mars, which we'll get to later, plays with that very interestingly from the moment it says, and Tim Robbins, you're like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, he's going to explode know. in space for you're, sure. <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to do something with that. But, it, you know, there's just no um, there's there's no spontaneity in Red Planet. And re-watching it the other night to prepare for this, I was hard-pressed to think of a movie that so feels like a slog like this does by the end, where you mm-hmm. are just like, get somewhere get to the end of the planet, get to the thing you're finding, get off the planet. I need this to stop. I watched on an airplane. Um, It was my first big flight in the kind of, you know, post third wave COVID era. Watched on an airplane, which is a really strange (laughs) experience. (laughs) And yeah, it was just like felt my my flight felt so long, (laughs) longer than it should have flying from British Columbia to Toronto because I was watching Red Planet. Um, Well, let's get into this idea of of hard sci-fi being a hard sell. How much authenticity do you think the average viewer actually wants to see? Because you think of something where like it's just now the everyday life of these truckers in space like Alien versus I mean even um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey makes it kind of this is the everyday life of these people until it gets weird and goes off the rails. This is going for that level but there's still like uh, you almost feel like you're on Earth the entire time like they don't ever deal really with like a lot of gravity or anything like this. This is dealing with like the actual physics and what would happen if you were in the situation and then and when it goes out of the reality is when it becomes weird and you just you can't follow the logic anymore. Yeah. What do yeah. you think? I mean, so there's a Roger Ebert review that you've already kind of mentioned. Um, but one of the things he kind of talks about is there, you know, this it, this could have been a great 1950s sci-fi because 1950s sci-fi doesn't care about psychology or characters. It's just about brainy scientists trying to get themselves get and get the earth out of this box that is growing smaller and smaller every minute. And in that way, Red Planet does that because you do have these great scenes um, that were heavily, I guess, researched and kind of authentically presented of what fire would look like in zero gravity. With It's one of Carrie Ann Moss's best um, action sequences. But who cares? It's 2000. Like, this isn't War of the Worlds from 1953. <laughs> this isn't the day that we're stood still. Who cares? We, I don't care in 2021. And I definitely wouldn't have cared about that level in 2000. You need the characters to support hard science fiction. And Red Planet doesn't have it. And I think I'll be curious to see what you and Adam think about Mission to Mars because there's it's a 
very different film. Well, when you're well, when you're mentioning War of the Worlds or or Day Dirt, still my ears perk up because also what those movies have in them in different ways the the old George Powell War of the Worlds, but certainly Day Dirt still is they convey the largeness and the stakes of what's going on yes. through some kind of through some kind of an emotional attachment or some kind of an emotional display by the characters. So the Day of the Earth still is interesting. You've got this impassive, kind of boring, in, in a way, very stolid alien protagonist played by Michael Reddy. You've got this big robot gort. You know, it's mm-hmm. all somewhat campy. But it's conveyed at the end of the film that the exposition is like, if we are not careful, you, you in the audience, with our reliance on technology and our competitiveness on Earth, we're going to sort of you know, destroy ourselves, it arrives at that moment of revelation. Red Planet front loads the exposition so badly mm-hmm. in those first five minutes. It's like everything's gone to shit. We have no chance for anything because we're telling you, not showing you. It's a voiceover. It's really bad. It's, it's a one of the worst voiceovers I've ever seen in a film. And it's where you can tell that either the director isn't sure or the director wasn't sure, so they forced the voiceover in to give this kind of narrative coherence. We'll get to Mission to Mars in a second, but in the first 10 seconds of Mission to Mars, you know everything you need to know about the Mm -hmm. visual, emotional, somewhat satirical language of this movie because it's made by a great filmmaker. The first shot of Mission to Mars is great. Mm -hmm. There there is no first shot of Red Planet. I guess there's a first shot in the movie, but there's no visual announcement. There's no language. There's no... honing in on a character there's just a bunch of people are going here because we say so and it never clarifies simplifies or focuses in a way of not just great 50s sci-fi but of of, of decent sci-fi from any era think about alien which 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 alicia brought up that movie is unbelievably interesting even before the alien arrives even before it shows its horror movie hand you know i love the first 20 minutes of that movie i could watch two hours of the boring space trucking uh, yeah, and I think also to your point about the 50s sci-fi and to um, Alien and subsequently Aliens, the production design is there. There's Even if you're yeah. not a science fiction nerd, and these films appeal to far beyond sci-fi nerds, the production design is there, there's heart, there's thought, there's you know follow-through, and none of that is there in Red Planet. The production design is, um, they really focus on authenticity, and you have that sort of international space station. And I do love that the Mars rovers make a cameo. <laughs> like the ones that people would recognize from the news headlines are have a cameo in a film set in the, in the uh, 2050s. But it's just, it's not there. It doesn't look and I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna be really unfair and invoke 2001 again. The thing about Hal is that it's scary because it's not embodied. Yeah. Right? It's like, this is scary. It can't move. It's just a panel. You know, in, in, in Red Planet, they try and have it both ways. You try and have this idea of CGI run amok because, as Alicia says, it gets set to evil, like the crusty yeah. doll from The Simpsons. <laughs> it reminds me of The Emperor's New Groove. They say, why do we have that lever? It's like, why do you have the evil switch on your <laughs> GPS? Just don't build it that way. I hate that kind of cinema sins way of reviewing movies like i hate talking about plot inconsistencies as reasons movies are bad but it's really stupid yeah it, 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 it like really stupid but then when it becomes this like agile you know robot monster terminator thing it's not scary because then it's not about ideas being scary it's just this thing that just won't stop chasing people and it that doesn't happens look, to be on mars and it just happens, happens to be on mars, mars and, and nothing else matters yeah it's it's yeah. 
So I think there's a lot of ways to fix this film, because as I think we've kind of established, it doesn't know exactly what it is. So it's just throwing everything to the wall. And that might be the case of the original script just being not knowing what it was. Um, Or this might be the case of a director who just didn't know how to play on this scale. Um, And I think about the idea that like, okay, you're just randomly now throwing a guy off a cliff. That was the part that made me go, sorry, what? (laughs) The most is when Benjamin Breck gets tossed off a cliff. Um, I think by, is it Simon, what's it, Simon Baker? Yeah, Simon Baker tosses him off a cliff for no apparent reason. Well, no, reason. he called I... him. He called him a, a name. He called him a mean name. I came up here to forgive you. Yeah, well, screw you. I don't need forgiveness from a pussy like you. And then he tossed him over. The... So then I started thinking about like the if you're going authentic. They do a lot of psychological tests on astronauts, like a lot of psychological tests on astronauts. Why are you sending homicide, obvious homicidal maniacs who snap that quickly out into space, even when they've been under it? Like just certain things just don't make any sense about why the stakes are now happening to these characters. Yeah. And and again, the characters we are left with in the end, it would be far more compelling to have just shot a documentary of Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore preparing for scenes than (laughs) than the kind of weird waiting for Godot, Martian wandering thing you get with, with, with these two actors. The movie eventually boils down to kind of the two of them going through the final stages of the Mars decathlon, you know, and just yeah. um, considering maybe it's because they hated each other, their hearts weren't in it, or just, you know, the movie isn't particularly well edited or made at any point, but it really dies when you're down to, and then there were two, and then there was one, which is when a movie should start cooking, you know? Mm-hmm. That, that's when you want, and that's something that a movie like The Martian, which I don't even really like, it does have the irresistible hook of a character's loneliness and mm-hmm. isolation, and you have Matt Damon playing against the situation, and Matt Damon yeah. is better playing against the situation and to the audience, and the movie lets him be, I guess it's a differently written movie, than these guys are playing off of each other. Like, there's the inevitable moment in this where one of them is kind of like, not just the bit with Terrence Stamp where it's like, don't leave me behind, and then he dies. But there's the inevitable moment with Kilmer and Sizemore, like one guy's got to kind of let the other guy go, and you get the self-sacrificial gesture. And I'm sitting on my couch being like, I know it's not totally the movie's fault because I'm dead inside now, but I feel nothing. (laughs) You're telling me when Tom Sizemore kamikazes himself, you don't commit Terry Curry to save Val Kilmer, you felt nothing? Thing? No. Of course not. Yeah. From no. from little parasites. But at the end of the at the very end of the movie, the Earth might just be saved. We might not need to terraform Mars. That's the entire point. Oh, is that yeah. we have found some that. sort of Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, because the, these um the little creatures are what cause the the Earth to be able to breathe. Except for they like to burrow inside you. They 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 restore the atmosphere. That's the whole point of this thing. And now they managed to get them back to the space station where Carrie Ann Moss can now deconstruct them and save the planet. Well, this is definitely a film that's not aware of what happens when you take a xenomorph <laughs> off of the planet. <laughs> in order to save your current planet because we've seen that happen in Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, and Alien Resurrection. It's a bad idea. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's probably the place where we should move into our next film because I think we have nicer things to say yes. about Mission to Mars. Uh, we're all De Palma fans here, it seems like. All right. So when we come back, it's Mission to Mars. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Brian De Palma isn't the first person who would come to mind when you think, let's hand off a big budget ensemble thriller too. But a lot of people forget that he helmed the first exponentially successful Mission Impossible movie. And although Mission to Mars wasn't his very next movie, we're going to jump over the bizarre but candidate for this podcast, Snake Eyes, it makes sense that he'd be chosen for Apollo 13 meets the abyss. And hey, it even has Gary Sinise in it. It would, however, be De Palma's last studio film. And if the title sounds familiar to you, just know that this is a movie made by Disney based on one of its rides tangentially. But we're going to get into that. So, Adam, what's the basic plot of Mission to Mars? Mission to Mars is set in 2020. And I noticed that dateline when I was watching it last night going like... 13 months actually makes it July 2021. July, yeah, July 2021. Mm -hmm. That's what they land on July 2020. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, it's it's happening. (laughs) It's happening right now. Yeah. Somewhere in space, they're listening to Van Halen's Dance the Night Away um, (laughs) in in real time. No, it's it's interesting. It's about a group of like NASA pals or space pals. There's this real camaraderie between these three guys Gary Sinise, Don Cheadle, and Tim Robbins, which is a pretty good trio. I would watch a remake of Husbands with those guys. I would watch oh. a remake of The Three Musketeers <laughs> with those guys. Um, Gary Sinise wanted Once Upon a Time to go to space, and for reasons pertaining to just life and the death of his similarly uh, space-questing partner, played in flashbacks by Kim Delaney, he's no longer going to go. Don Cheadle wants to go to space and picks the emotionally terroristic thing of reading his kid Treasure Island right when he's about to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, son, I know I got to go. Let's each read Treasure Island separately from each other. Like, Dad, could you maybe not pick something about someone getting lost in an island? I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> and and then Tim Robbins, who likes Sinise, has this beautiful life space partner who has not died. And it's hard for Gary Sinise to see this because he also was part of a space couple. His his lady died. And Tim Robbins' lady, Connie Nielsen, is alive and well. So Cheadle goes into space with his own crew. They go to Mars. They think they find something. They broadcast their findings back to Earth with a 20-minute delay. So at the exact moment that all the people on Earth are like, cool, they found something, they are actually getting ripped apart by this strange phenomenon on the surface of Mars. 20 minutes pass, and the people on Earth go, oh, my God. And when you say ripped apart, you literally literally mean you see someone torn limb from limb. From limb, yeah. And then the the, the space friends... uh, Tim Robbins and Gary Sidney say, we got to go get him, which is very different than trying to go pull somebody, you know, who's like a hostage or someone who's, you know, drowning somewhere. I mean, they actually have to go 100 days later into space. So there's all these multiple nodes of suspense. It's like, will anyone from the first mission 
to Mars be alive? Will they be reached in time? Will this second mission encounter similar problems or other problems? But also, and I'm not being glib when I say this, it's a movie about the emotions of its characters. These are all people who really want to do something. They have a great desire to explore, and some of them pay for that desire, and you know, others are are, are driven by it in a somewhat heroic way. It's a it, uh, it's a it's a kind of Hoxian movie about professionalism and camaraderie and sort of sacrifice. It is and featuring when they, Jerry O'Connell. Featuring Jerry O'Connell, <laughs> who's there as I guess a sop to the kids. You know, he's. I love Jerry O'Connell. He's one of those people who shows up, and I know I'm going to smile. <laughs> I'm okay with. But that. but you know, the mission to Mars gets in trouble before they get to Mars, and then mm-hmm. once on Mars, minus one member of their mission, which we'll talk about later. You know, they they encounter uh, what can sort of only be described as, you know, uh, a, a Kubrickian reckoning with the infinite, but expressed very, very differently than 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 2001 expressed, not just through images, but through languages. And actually, it gets more Spielbergian than Kubrickian. By I was going to say it's more AI. Yeah, I was saying close, more, encounter, more, more AI close encounters, close too. encounters, yeah. you know, yeah. by, by the end. And because this is Brian De Palma, who started out as the American Goddard and then became a Hitchcock appropriationist. When the movie came out, everyone says, because I recognize these trace elements of these other movies in the film, it must be a ripoff or bad. Instead of looking at the different ways that it uses that iconography, it weighs very different than those original filmmakers. There's definitely some of Kubrick in Mission to Mars, but it's mm-hmm. about very different things than 2001 is about, I think. And this is a film that, while in North America, was kind of universally panned by critics and didn't do well at the box office, although it wasn't as dismal as Red Planet. No. The French loved it. So, like, Cahiers du Cinema put it as their number four film of the year, which, of course, makes sense because they are early adopters of Brian De Palma's greatness. But to me, that was reading that going into this film, and I did see this film when it came out in 2000. I just don't remember much. Um, put a really interesting kind of twist on it, the idea that this is an auteurist, like you're saying, Adam, and also a film that, you know, if the French like it, it must be classy, right? Well, and there's a, there's a famous review from an American from the inimitable and I think quite estimable uh, Armin White, who's, you know, a, a really formidable critical presence in between being kind of nuts. And he, <laughs> he, 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 but he threw the gauntlet down pretty hard for this movie. And it's a very quotable line. He says that anyone who doesn't like Mission to Mars does not enjoy movies, much less understand them. And what I, and what I love uh-huh. about the, what I love about the quote is that it's absolutely in, in contrast to the dismal critical reception that the movie got. The kind of Kubrick rolling in his grave dismissal that, you know, this movie is someone else's leftovers. I believe it is very possible to like and enjoy and understand movies without liking Mission to Mars, but I am more sympathetic (laughs) to that statement than I am to the one-star reviews of the film by people being hacky and lazy. Agreed. Let's get into the idea that, because De Palma is considered an auteur, if you subscribe to the auteur theory. Um, now, what do you see in him with everyone talking about this left, uh, leftover, warmed over? What should people be looking for that is De Palma that stands out to you? His movies are always about people who fail to save the people they love. And technology can't save you, although he's he's interested in technology whizzes and geeks. You think of the kid in Dress to Kill, you know, you think of yeah. he, he has all these characters who are always interested in technology and surveillance and in, in, in gadgets. And, you know, here they get to play with them on a huge scale and it still doesn't quite save the one or, or I guess, couple of characters who pass away. 
But this movie is not as swamped by failure as De Palma's movies often are. I think he's the greatest filmmaker of failure in the history of American cinema. They fail always to save people in his movies, and that happens here. But you also see characters follow their principles into a very heroic realm, a very beautiful line in the script. It's a cheesy line, and it's not a a soft pedal line. It's a heavy-handed line about, you know, life reaches out for life. And when you think about that line in terms of reaching out and not quite saving someone, and then the moments of reaching out and actually reaching them and pulling them back, the movie plays with both of those things. And in both areas, both the failure and the success, it it kind of applauds the effort. This is an uncon unconventionally sentimental movie for De Palma, not because he's unemotional. I think that's the biggest bullshit about him that people have, that there aren't feelings in his movies. There are. But here the feelings are actually quite sweet. And typically with him, they're not. You know, typically it just ends in tragedy and sadness. And here there's real excitement and optimism about finding something new in the universe. And a sustainable marriage. Like that makes it a rare yes. case for De Palma where there isn't a marriage that's based on, you know, psychological terrorism yeah. or uh, <laughs> fetishistic uh, obsession. It really is just a nice married couple are in space and have to deal with the fact that each are expendable, essentially. What do we a married couple? Would it kill you to invite me out on the dance floor just once? We danced. We danced at our no, wedding. We danced. No, that's not dancing, Woody. That's you shuffling your feet around while you grab my butt. But if, yeah, if I may point out, that makes them bad astronauts, as you see, because she almost puts the mission completely in jeopardy. And this would be an argument I'm sure a lot of people would make for putting married couples in space, you know, regardless of whether or not you're colonizing with them and doing like a moonraker style thing. Um, you know, you gotta you got to make sure that these people are psychologically prepared to make those sacrifices, which in this case, it turns out she isn't. If anyone tries to get you, they'll die too. Well, there's there's two moments at the beginning of the film. And again, this is a movie that and maybe Alicia could speak to this, too, if it was based on her viewing of it. Like this is a movie that has a lot of things in it that are very prosaic and obvious and from a certain angle seem kind of clunky. I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. that that's true. But in the first 10 minutes, you have a child's rocket shot like a real NASA rocket and you don't realize that it's exploding in confetti until it happens and you have gary mm -hmm. city's looking at a children's sandbox and making a footprint of in that sandbox in lieu of being able to walk on the moon these are images that speak very eloquently and not accidentally to the idea of this youthful ambition that then gets compromised by adult attachments. And it's because Gary Sinise, through tragedy, is a man without attachments. He has friends and he has people who care about him and he's willing to die for anybody else. But his, his, his wife is gone. He doesn't have a family of his own, unlike the other astronauts who are kids who have to think about the people they've left behind. That being without attachments lets you go into the unknown. I've always thought it's hugely screwed up at the end of Close Encounters of the Third Kind that Richard Dreyfuss leaves his family. I was just about to bring this up, yeah. and actually Spielberg has said if he were to make that movie today, he wouldn't make the same choice because yeah. now he has children and attachments. He never would have made a it. Absolutely, yeah. and, and I don't think that disqualifies Close Encounters. I actually think in the same way that that movie is much scarier than people remember. It really is a 50s oh, yeah. sci-fi movie until at the end it's just Woodstock yeah. or Burning Man. <laughs> you know, it's like hey, the aliens are putting on a light show. But yeah, I mean, he leaves to go into the infinite. And Mission to Mars plays with that idea too, except I would argue, in a way, Mission to Mars, it feels more dramatically earned than mm -hmm. it does at the end of Close Encounters. Because by this point in the movie, you understand everything about why Gary Sinise wants to be that guy. 
And you also understand everything why the other two characters can't be that person because of what their attachments are and what they've left behind. May I ask, did you expect the soda pop brand Dr. Pepper to save the day as much as it did (laughs) in this film? No, but thinking about the Dr. Pepper M&M branding made me think, as always, (laughs) that De Palma is taking the piss out of his 70s pals. Yeah. When you watch yeah. when you watch De Palma, it's all about. There's a long scene in that documentary of Spielberg driving around talking to Brian De Palma on a car phone. Like yeah. these guys were all buddies, so of course De Palma is going to be the guy who uses M and M's to trace yeah. the outline of a woman's boobs instead of <laughs> instead of E. T. eating the Reese's pieces. Of course, he's going to use Dr. Pepper. It's the same feeling you get in E.T. with the Reese's Pieces, which is if it's generic candy, you don't buy it. Branding is 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 how we recognize the 21st century. And he does it in a very irreverent way. I think it's hilarious. I, I will say to his credit as well, and I, I like the Dr. Pepper stuff. Um, there was actually in the 80s, I guess one of the NASA missions had a, a, a test of the effects of soda pop in zero <laughs> gravity and on the health of the astronaut. So that was like a thing. I don't know if it was Dr. Pepper specifically, but um, it was certainly something that was being written about in the 80s was soda pop in space. Yeah, Makes well, because soda pop's the most prefab food in the world, right? It's, 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 and this it's is a Disney film. I mean, it's Disney. a Touchstone Pictures. We should say that it's produced by Disney, um, and it has the ear. There's a hidden Mickey. I didn't. I couldn't spot it, but there is a hidden Mickey Mouse um, illustration somewhere on the space shuttle that you would have to like really zoom in on. But I do. You know, we have to remind ourselves that this is this is Touchstone, which was able to do things like rip a man from limb to limb <laughs> on screen and not get in trouble. Uh, uh, but it's very much, you know, a Disney product. Well, if I can say just to just go into the Disney angle for a, for a minute, because this is actually really interesting. This is one of the first kind of test runs of what the rides theme park movies were going to look like. Because um, Dick Cook, who was the chairman of Walt Disney Studios at the time, was like, we got to start making movies based on theme parks to get people more into the theme parks and get that going and build more kind of uh, rapport that way. And so what they decided to do was they were like, OK, are these going to be direct-to-video or TV movies, or are they going to be big screen movies? So the first movie they did was Tower of Terror, um, which is on 1990, which is uh, 1997, and it's like Steve Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst um, in like a TV-style movie that was actually shot at the Disney MGM Studios in their like little thing there. It was a technically a working studio. It's the only thing that was ever actually shot there. Um, and then they decided to do Mission to Mars on the big screen and make it for, for adults. And um, this didn't do as well as they thought it was going to do, and therefore they actually ended up canceling they own the rights to John Carter of Mars, um, and they ended up canceling that project that was meant to be uh, directed by uh, John McTiernan, starring Tom Cruise. And then eventually, you would get it made, you know, in the disaster form that we now know of with the Taylor Kishner I, I version. Really like it. I don't know. And this was also <laughs> supposed to be directed originally by Gore Verbinski, where De Palma comes on way after this has been developed. When Gore Verbinski, Gore Verbinski who did Mouse Hunt in 1997, one of my favorite films of all time, you know, he had a lot of clout, and but they realized this is too much budget, and he went on to do The Mexican. But he also would end up doing, of course, Lone Ranger, which is kind of in the, the same vein as John Carter as these in, disaster inter- films. Interestingly, the only millennial Disney movie for a theme park ride that worked was The Straight Story. Where you, 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 you go to Disneyland and you sit on a tractor while very slow rear projection goes behind you, and you think about and you think about death. It's a, it's a great. It's a. It's a. It's, I mean, I just love that you have David Lynch and Brian De Palma and back to back years doing, doing Disney movies Disney, ab- yeah. about ab- about death trips, basically. 
I mean, what you're bringing up is there should just be a theme park that is rides of David Lynch films and rides of Brian De Palma films. A, so a, you Brian, could do... a, a Brian De Palma theme park is incredible idea, Alicia. <laughs> well, with the I'm raising gonna, cane. <laughs> right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to email the patent office. Please now. put my name on it. Just th- Everybody gets a blonde wig as they enter with sunglasses instead of mouse ears. That'll be great. Oh, yeah, no, and the Fury, you the, the, the destroyed Ferris wheel. I mean, it... it the it, elevator right. from Dress to Kill. The elevator from <laughs> <laughs> Dress to Kill, yeah. So um, but it is interesting that this is something that he took over and in the original definition of O-Tourism, uh, still found a way to get his stuff in there while doing a kind of handed over Disney... Uh, job for hire, which he would never get again, not just because of this movie, but when Becky mentioned earlier, I mean, when I was rewatching it, I'd forgotten this fact. It is his last big studio movie. Mm-hmm. It's not his last glossy movie because um, The Black Dahlia feels like a very true built movie, but this was like his last big shot four years after Mission Impossible had sort of reopened those doors for him. It's It's interesting. Well, the reason for that, he's actually given interviews since, and he said at this point he was just getting note after note after note for executive, and he just got so tired of having to deal with that. And there was a movie, oh, based on one of the the horrible college pedophilia scandals that was going to be starring Al Pacino, he was going to do for HBO. And before they even went to the first table read, the executives were already sending him like email after email. And so he just called it quits. He said, we're not doing this. Sandusky, that was it, who it was. Um, he was just like, we're not doing this anymore. And so he just won't work within the system anymore because he says it's so populated with executives and that uh, directors and filmmakers can't yeah, breathe anymore. You, uh, you love the little bits of spaciousness in this movie that, you know, it's not that like they don't belong in a Disney film, but they're just so unusual for a Hollywood movie of any mm-hmm. kind. Like when they listen to Van Halen. In the long, it's gorgeous long take where they're on gorgeous. like the circular part you can picture from 2001 a space odyssey and the camera's following the connie nielsen character she like does a full 360 this also has an Ennio morricone score beautiful score it is at first the first half hour is like this doesn't sound like his music this is so confusing and then when it hits which is all of course the kind of suspenseful in space sequences it hits really hard and it's it's an interesting score that i think never gets talked about in his filmography yeah, no, it, I, I was thinking about the score while watching it, too. It is a bit of a, schiz- a schizophrenic score. Like oh, it, keeps, yeah. it keeps changing. But then I love how it's punctuated by pop. I mean, the Van Halen, I mean, no one thinks of Van Halen as being lyrical, right? But when the idea of Dance the Night Away is being literalized by this couple in zero gravity, mm-hmm. and the Tim Robbins character talks about never wanting to take dance lessons, and then space kind of gives him that grace, that then pays off again in the great set piece with very different music where he's floating away way which mm-hmm. you talked about sort of shows them as bad astronauts but shows them very much as people and like when do you let someone go which is a literal thing in that scene mm. and a figurative thing in that scene and i find in De Palma's whole compendium of people falling away from people which happens all when you think about carrie is a hand reaching out from the yeah. grave it's always reaching out it's angie dickinson reaching out to um Nancy Allen from the elevator. It's Nancy Allen reaching out at the end of blowout. It's the woman falling off the bridge and casualties of war. Mm -hmm. And to reverse that by having it be a man and not a woman and an inversion of chivalry and even the way that Tim Robbins plays it, because he's not falling fast when this character is falling. It's this slow motion death knell. And even just talking about it and even given the clunkiness of the surrounding context, it's devastating. 
I mean, I'm sorry. It's a very moving moment in a Hollywood movie compared to almost anything else from that period that I can think of. Definitely compared to Red Planet, because those yes, deaths do sure. not get that kind of treatment. And one thing we haven't mentioned, is this is actually a Graham Yost uh, screenplay. So he's coming off of Speed and... Um, that I, that I kind of find interesting. I see a lot of the action in this film being kind of a tribute to Yost as knowing how to build action around character development and psychological suspense. Yeah, definitely psychological. So it's now one could argue, and maybe Alicia or Becky won't argue this, I mean, when they touch down on the planet and you get bearded Don Cheadle, who's kind of been, you know, living, you know, living like a, like a, like, you know, in Castaway. Plato, like a castaway in Plato's cave. Robinson Crusoe would be a better novel for them to be reading yeah. rather than Treasure Island. But yeah. there, is, there is an extent to which the movie stalls a bit mm-hmm. and an extent to which the way that it tries to visualize the infinite. You'll notice he gives you Kubrick's monolith, except instead of just a black rectangle, you can actually go into it. Mm-hmm. And then it's just yeah. the, a planetarium show, which explains all the things that Kubrick's movie doesn't explain. My four-year-old inexplicably is now drawn to 2001 these days. She's I thought you were drawing... going to say you watched this with no. Leah, and I was like, don't put that on this podcast. No, <laughs> no. But my four-year-old, because of my parents, ended up looking at parts of 2001, and now she draws me pictures of Hal and, and Daisy's. <laughs> here they, here... That's so creepy. Oh, my God. Oh, my yeah. God. She... We are literally looking at a picture yeah. of this list. Anyway, my, it's my, very my, cute. My point. my point is that we've been, we've been looking at 2001 lately, and, you know, the whole point point of the last 20 or 30 minutes of that movie is the the connectivity between the images you're seeing is left for you there is a big amount of explaining at the end of mission to mars and i think that that's kind of where people found the opening to take their shots at the movie to say this movie is very literal on the other hand you could sort of say this is just a different kind of movie it's aiming for a kind of coherence and message that doesn't make it better or worse than 2001 it's different it's definitely I not think... asking its audience to take acid or LSD and head oh. to a movie theater the way that 2001 kind of opened the doors for. I think these kind of movies are intended to invite you to ask the question, if I were in this position, what would the choice I I would make uh, be? Because, I mean, it's something similar, as we talked about earlier in um, Close Encounters of the Thir- Third Kind, would I get on the plane? In this case, he makes the, the choice where, like, um, Gary Sinise does have friends and people who love him, but he is missing that concept of actual exploration. It takes a major tragedy for him to be able to actually live his dream, and who knows what he's headed towards? We have this idea that these creatures are benevolent and they are technically our creators, but we don't actually know who they are or what they want or if they're just going to bring them in and turn them into a zoo, right? Um, you don't, or just dissect him or, or make him something else. You never actually know what's going to happen. And I think the the thing I liked about the movie is that it, it invites you to kind of have those would I make the same decision if that was the case? If I was watching my partner go, but I knew that I would sacrifice the, the mission for this one person, would I, you know, w- would I make that same choice? And I think this movie is really good at asking you to put yourself in that position and ask those questions well, for yourself. How rare is it for a Hollywood movie to earn not one but two happy endings side by side? Because it's a double it's a double happy ending for the characters who need double to... Double rainbow. Double rainbow. It is double <laughs> rainbow. For the characters who need to be back, they're allowed to be. And for the guy who looks at the sandbox and sees his footprint and is like, I want to put my footprint somewhere else, he gets to. And it's funny because if De Palma has some of the funniest end, the end credits I have ever seen in movies. Like if you've seen Passion, it has the funniest the end of any movie ever made. I love Passion so yeah. much. That is like my favorite 
like, one of my favorite like, De Palmas. I mean, if you, I mean, at least if you remember the the end, the way it just yeah. jumps on screen. I mean, here there is a very abrupt the end. Yeah, I I just interpret it as a a director who's saying, "Yep, we actually have closure. I have I have brought this film to a place of dramatic coherence, and the rest is kind of left up to you." It's not a very chin strokey ending. It's pretty definitive. Yeah, allegedly, allegedly there is a alternate ending. Allegedly. allegedly, De Palma says this was written, but it was never filmed. But some people claim there's an Easter egg where this actually exists on a DVD that it was shot, where the uh, capsule actually hits the like escaping thing that he's doing, and the two of them explode in a giant, uh, a giant blaze of fire. So nobody survives. There is that an alleged alternative ending, but De Palma has said that it was never shot. It was just part of an original idea and the script. It sounds like him joking around. <laughs> Well, joking around or being like, I have also made those movies before. Because you don't get a bleaker string of endings than Carrie, yeah. Dress to Kill, Blow. And I think that that's why, even though it is, it has elements of him in it, it is also somewhat atypical. Like, I was screwing around writing about this movie on Letterboxd the other night for fun. And I was like, a movie about competent, talented people who care about each other, directed by Checks Notes, Brian De Palma, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it is sort of somewhat odd. I guess I'm very uh, susceptible to the, the good feeling in this movie because it, it for some reason, it, as kind of not, not cheesy, like as kind of earnest as it is, it doesn't feel dumb, you know? Yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. And I think maybe coming back to Red Planet, it's because the special effects, which are partially ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, are very good. The production design is beautiful. They're basing a lot of the Martian kind of sculptures, not just on 2001, but on Brancusi's, um, Constantin Brancusi's, like, symmetrical, beautiful facial sculptures. This has bite. This this actually has thought out, you know, design and thought out. Um, it's not just so committed to authenticity and science the way that Red Planet was that it doesn't yeah, look good. Yeah, that's a really good point for sure. Especially the the architecture that you're talking about is quite it's gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ebert, I think, reviewed this kind of negatively, although not as negatively as Red Planet. And he was attracted to that sculpture, this this Martian face that you see on Mars that happens like really, I think, thirty or forty minutes into the film, if not earlier. And he wanted that to be the climax. And that's kind of interesting because. I think it's really bold of De Palma not to make that the climax. That's just part of the first act. And then everything that comes after it is the explanation for why that face is there. Because that's not what most directors would have done. Yeah, we do get a slightly unfortunate, like, benevolent, smiling Spielberg alien. Oof, that alien she's, doesn't work for me. She's, she, she, I, I like that it's a she. I think it's a she. Mm -hmm. But she's not great. <laughs> Yeah, she's a little bit like, to use another Simpsons reference, Mr. Burns in the X-Files episode, where he's yeah. like, I have yeah. peace, and he's the alien. But this is uh, this is also a reference, if you just get back to the face for a second, it's a reference to the 1976 photo of the surface of Mars that was captured uh, by the Viking One mission, which everyone was like, it looks like a face, and it just, and it does, when you look at it, look like a face. Speaking of X-Files episodes, they did a whole episode about this haunting astron astronaut's dreams, um, but it's, uh, it's just like a side view of, like, a particular type of crater that when you look at it one way you see a face. It actually reminds me of AI which I know is after but for me I'm a huge fan of AI but I like to turn it off at a certain point and then it's a perfect film and I feel like that there's maybe a tiny argument to that with Mission to Mars. Not necessarily that it needs to be turned off at a certain point but if you could maybe make your own cutout of the alien that you would like to see and then just kind of hold it up to the screen and move it around so you don't have to look at this uh, very 
Disney-nified uh, creature, it might might help the film a little bit. Well, the same moment an AI lands like a, a haymaker with the blue fairy underwater. Yeah. And you have this theme park attraction. Which I love. I love. And which can't, by definition, do anything for him because she's just a religious icon. He's invested her with meaning. And that is. And then when you think about the fact that the narration says he looks at her for 2,000 years, then you see Spielberg operating in this actual Kubrick realm of like, I'm not saying anything, but it's saying a ton. But the faith we put in religion and sculpture and icons and how we imbue meaning on these things that can't actually do something for us. That's where I hit stop on my VCR. The the alien at the end of Mission to Mars is actually like, I'm smiling at you because I can actually kind of give you what you you want, little Mm -hmm. human. And it's a little hackneyed. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Red Planet does little bugs that will burrow into your brain and make your, you know, head explode. Mission to Mars does happy time alien. I can save the planet. And we haven't, and we haven't even mentioned the most mutilated space travel movie from this period of them all, which could be a subject of a future podcast. Which space is Space Cowboys? Hill's, oh no, no, no uh, Walt, Walt, Walter Hill's Supernova. Yeah, a, yes, a film yeah. so mangled that Francis Ford Coppola actually volunteered. He's like, I can fix this. <laughs> what year is Supernova? Not two thousand, is it? Isn't it? Isn't it? I think oh it's two thousand. Some somewhere somewhere around there. Maybe I have it wrong. A, a movie that also did not did not do well. God, but, it is but, 2000, yeah. right? But, we, but, but which is held up in a, in a way a bit like Mission to Mars is as like the, the compromised vision of an old school auteur as opposed to what you got with Anthony Hoffman, which is just like the guy didn't quite know what he was in for. What's crazy about this podcast episode is I knew we wanted to do Mission to Mars. And then it was a question of what nine or ten films can we pair with it. And, yeah, I vaguely remember thinking about Supernova. But uh, it's interesting because you also have, I was making a joke earlier, but like Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood. And sure. like there's like just the amount of space films in the year 2000 space, is remarkable. Space Cowboys makes a very progressive point, which is that we should celebrate old white guys in the 21st century the way we did <laughs> in, in the 20th. You know, they, they haven't left. Especially the crankier they are and the less least helpful, yeah. you should celebrate them more. <laughs> I, I, I quite like Space Cowboys. Yeah. And and Clint and Clint, if you're listening, just don't don't ever die, okay? <laughs> All right. I think that is the perfect place to leave it as we're discussing uh, old white men who make their own movies exactly the way they want yeah. to make them. So, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you, Becky. I already have like a million new ideas for next season for weird space movies. This, this could be a whole <laughs> season of a podcast on its own. I'm sure that as you've just given someone an excellent idea. It's going to be on <laughs> iTunes before we can even imagine it. And Adam Naiman, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Now, how can people find you and your multitudes of work? Uh, I write film for The Ringer. You can pick up issues of Cinemascope, which Alicia is also often in. Um, I have a couple books out now that will be pertinent this fall. We have new films coming from Joel Cohen and Paul Thomas Anderson, and I have books on both of those dudes. And I completed the uh, Male Formalist trilogy with an upcoming book on David Fincher, who's a very obscure <laughs> film. Our <laughs> listeners will not have heard of him. He's no, only, he, he does a only lot of TV cinema like David Fincher. <laughs> Yeah, very, very, very little written about his films. I'm hoping that this book is going to do that thing where you light a candle instead of cursing the dark, <laughs> you know? And and if maybe just one more person as a result sees Gone Girl. Or seven. I mean, uh, I've always felt seven was very underrepresented. Alien 3. Alien 3 is my personal yeah, favorite. Yep. Yeah, no, so so, that, so that's what you can... Uh, 
that's 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 where you can 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 find me. And uh, thank you again for having me. And of course, you're such someone who's always on a year in film, the television version. So that's coming up with season three in December, and you can watch season two now. Yeah, they they, they make sure to cut around the parts where I just descend into <laughs> maniacal laughter about the movies Alicia asks me to talk about. Those are some of the fun, m- most fun times I've ever had. Your take on Howard the Duck <laughs> definitely built the segment. <laughs> Yeah, echoes through through the ages. <laughs> but uh, thank, thank, thank you guys. This was An awesome. absolute pleasure. And you can join us next week where we look at two millennial takes on monsters. And we're joined by Will Sloan and Justin DeClue of the Important Cinema Club podcast. It's Godzilla 2000 and Dracula 2000. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast on Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Today's guests were Alicia Fletcher and Adam Naiman. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.